Father, how could we ever impress you? We can only sing with the voice and the breath you gave us. We can only give you money that you provided to us first. We serve you with the talents you put in our lives. We're fragile, we're dust, and yet, Lord, we are your children, and we are made for eternity. So help us to revel in your greatness and to rest in it, and when we hear things about you that are unknown to us, if they're really of you, to love them and to trust you and to do everything you say with the loving attitude of children, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. More times than I can count in two different languages, I've been talking to people who find themselves in a great deal of trouble. And usually the pastor gets called in when things that have been going on for a very long time, sometimes dynamics that were set in motion before the people who were talking to me were even born, when all of those circumstances come together to make it so painful that they just have to tell somebody. And more times than I can count in both English and Spanish, I've heard someone looking back on their life and the trouble they find themselves in say something like, and that's when our trouble started. That was the turning point. And anytime I hear anything like that, it, I can't help it. It makes me sit back and wonder if I'm already in one of those moments myself. Because... People don't usually willingly go into heartbreak. It surprises them. It runs them down. It overcomes them. The people in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 12 may not know it because they're almost trampling Jesus. They're so excited and so eager to hear him. But that's the kind of trouble they find themselves in. It's not trouble yet. It's a crossroads. But for many of them, it will be trouble because too many people in the crowd will make the wrong choice about Jesus. He's been warning them in some of the hardest language he's ever used that their spiritual leaders are hypocrites, that they look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're, they're rotten. And in Luke chapter 12, if you'll look with me there, we hear some of the hardest words that Jesus ever spoke to anyone. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And there's a little cooking analogy there. There's leaven or yeast, and he says, look out for the yeast, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees, because they are hypocritical. And I don't bake, so I had to, in, I had to educate myself what leaven and yeast are. Leaven and yeast is a little tiny bit of fermentation that you can knead into all the fresh dough, and all bakers know this, that's what makes the bread rise. Jesus is saying, the leaders that have led you this far are hypocritical, and look out for them because their hypocrisy will infect and change all of you. 
That's what hypocrisy does. If you allow it in one area of your life, it will take over your life. If you discover that your best friend, your spouse, your boss is a hypocrite, that will change your view of everything they do and everything they are. And in the case of the Pharisees, what they're claiming to talk about is vitally important because they claim and believe that they are the custodians of God's truth. They're the experts in the scriptures that Jesus is opening up in the synagogue Sabbath by Sabbath. And Jesus finds himself in complete and absolute conflict with the Pharisees, and as the crowds are literally trampling each other to hear what Jesus says, what he has to say in all this passage are some terrible fearsome warnings, warning so hard that they may make you uncomfortable. And what he's going to begin speaking about is the fear of God. Let me just ask you on the front side. I say the phrase, fear of God. Does it make you uncomfortable? You have to be very careful in how you relate to God because too many people across the world are relating to a God who doesn't actually exist. They've tailored God and edited God down to a God of their own understanding as they wish Him to be. And the only God worth knowing, loving, and trusting is the God who is actually there. Whoever and whatever He is, that's your only safe way forward. If you relate to someone you've made up in your own mind, you don't have a relationship at all. You have a myth in your spiritual understanding. And Jesus is telling the crowds, the Pharisees have been leading you to disaster. And he's going to begin speaking to them about the fear of God, which would have been very familiar to them. A thousand years earlier, Solomon wrote this. Read these passages with me regarding the fear of God. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is what now? The beginning of knowledge. If you want to have any sort of real knowledge in the world, in your life, you have to begin with God. Knowledge begins, it says, with the fear of the Lord. And already a problem is created in some people's minds because through the way they were raised, the churches they attended, the way their grandma spoke about God, they imagined themselves cringing before a God who is not good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What does it mean then to fear God? Well, here's another passage from the Hebrew Scriptures that puts some light on it. This is God's explanation. Moses is repeating to Israel before they go into the promised line the the conditions of the covenant, their personal relationship with God, and this is what he said. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? That's a great lead-in. What is it that God wants? Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And if you don't know exactly what he means, let's keep reading and see if we can understand it. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways? To love him? So whatever the fear of God means, it can't be opposed to love. Do you see that? Whatever the fear of God is, 
It can't be in tension or conflict in any way with loving God. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for, what's it say? You're good. Whatever this covenant means, Moses says, this is all for your good. So whatever the fear of God is, it has to do with love. It has to do with trust. It has to do with wholehearted obedience. So here's my simple definition of what it means to love the Lord, to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord in the Bible is a reverence for God that leads you to loving trust and obedience. It is the kind of awe, reverence, Wow, being impressed, being overwhelmed, being overcome with how good he is, how strong he is, how God is the superlative of everything that is good, that it naturally leads you to trust him and to lovingly obey him. Does that make sense? Jesus taught us to pray this way, Father, hallowed be your name. If you understand hallowed, in other words, may your name be treated as very holy, may your name be treated as sacred, you have the idea of the fear of the Lord. It's not cringing, it is not terror, it is reverence. If a simple pale analogy can help you, it is what welled up in my heart as a kindergarten age boy the first time I realized my father was strong and able to defend me. Because I'd only seen the teddy bear. I'd only felt the hugs. I'd only felt the kisses. I'd only experienced the bedtime stories and the stack of comic books. And whatever I was into, that's what my dad was into. The first time as a five-year-old that it appeared that another man would threaten me and I saw my dad step forward and explain in very clear but Christian terms what was about to happen to that man if he gave us any more cause for concern. And I saw the fear in the other man's face, not the fear of reverence, but the fear of, oh my goodness, this is about to get really bad for me. It's that. I had a childlike awe of my father that made me love and trust him and be more grateful for him than I ever had in my life. It's why C.S. Lewis in his books that were written for children but have so much to teach adults, speaking of the great lion Aslan, one of the characters says, I'd be quite afraid to meet a lion. Is he quite safe? And the answer comes, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. You don't want a God who is safe to everything and to everyone. You want a God who can deal justice. You want a God who can see evil in the world and do something about it. You want him to be dangerous to sin. You want him to be dangerous to death. Otherwise, he's powerless to help you in your sin and as you face death. This is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. It's a reverence for God that leads you personally, not as a concept, but in your daily life. That's why Moses talks about walking, and the New Testament does too, to lovingly trust and obey Him. And that's what Luke chapter 12 is about. Because the crowds are trampling themselves to hear Jesus, but some of them are on the edge of making a terrible life 
life-ending decision, and Jesus begins to speak to them of why they should fear God. Look in verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Listen to Jesus talk to you now. This is huge. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. How's that make you feel? Would you like your entire week's activity put out in the open? Every conversation you've had, every internet search, every thought, every word, every motive exposed? Does anybody feel good about that? I don't. Jesus says your religious leaders are reading, leading you in the wrong way. Be careful because nothing you've said in the dark will stay in the dark. It will be said out loud. What you've said in private rooms will someday be shouted from the rooftops. What's he telling them? He's beginning to tell them why they should fear God. And here's the first reason. You should fear God, number one, because he is going to expose every secret. He will someday reveal the truth about everything. That's judgment which I love for somebody else, but not for me. Don't you love justice? As long as it's aimed elsewhere? What do you want for yourself? Mercy. Give him justice, give me mercy. But Jesus isn't done. It actually gets much, much, much more intense. These are some of the hardest words in the New Testament. I tell you, my friends speaking to his disciples now, because it's a mixed crowd. There's people that are trampling one another, and there are his disciples as well. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Whoa. Who's that? Is it Satan? No. It's God. I didn't know Jesus spoke like that. Yes. Often. I tell you, friends, don't be afraid of people who can merely torture and kill you. Because once they've killed you, that's all that they can do. Who's he speaking to? His apostles who in a very short period of time will be running literally for their lives. Men who will become bold for him because they will have encountered the risen Jesus and they will refuse to back down and take the story back. They would literally, to a man, face imprisonment, beatings, torture, and death rather than deny that they knew him. And he's preparing them for that moment. And it's in the Gospels because it's preparing you for your own time of testing. Don't be afraid of people, let's be American, who can only sue you and take everything you own. Because when they've taken all of your possessions, there's nothing more that they can do. 
If it comes to that and you actually die for Christ, don't be afraid because the moment you die for Christ, you'll be with Christ. And the men and the women who hated you will be nothing, will have nothing left to do to you. Who should you fear? Oh my goodness, what a verse. Look at it again. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed. If that surprises you about God, it shouldn't. God has authority over life and death. He gave us life. Sin brought death into the world. It's inevitable. You don't like it any more than I do, and you're like I, probably an expert in denial, but it's coming. God has authority over life and death, and God even has the authority to preemptively shorten someone's life end their life. And after that, Jesus says, he has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Why fear God? Number two, because he alone has the authority to throw people into hell. And you say, I don't like that. Well, candidly, I don't like it either for what we've just described. I don't want justice for myself. I want mercy. Why does Jesus speak this way? Because it's true. Not because he's a terrifying fear monger, but because he knows spiritual reality. He knows like no one else in front of him does at that moment the full extent of God's holy character and his absolute commitment to justice. And the only people who fear, who have no need to fear justice are people who have done nothing wrong. Have you done anything wrong? Everything you've ever done, Jesus says, can someday be exposed by God. How do you stand in front of a God like that? You can't. So Jesus says, have reverence, have fear of the one who has that kind of authority. He speaks hard words to spare you hard consequences. That's what love does. See, people who are mean and cruel will speak hard words only to harm you, but people who love you will speak hard words to spare you hard outcomes, hard consequences. Here's how the great English preacher Spurgeon explained it. No preacher was ever so loving as Christ. And that's true. No one who's ever spoken the good news of Scripture and the promises of God, no one who's ever spoken of the Heavenly Father was ever as loving as Jesus was, but no man ever spoke so horribly about hell. Jesus speaks horribly about hell because He knows its reality. And then He says a third reason to fear God. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So you're reading this slowly, as I've encouraged you many times to do. Did you notice his tone changed? A lot. He said, be very afraid of the God who has the authority to kill and throw people into hell. That's who you should be afraid of. 
No one else in in life actually deserves your ultimate fear. Only the God who has authority over everything deserves to be feared this way. And then he turns, and remember, he's speaking now to his disciples, to the people he called friends. And he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. He's explaining something to them. He said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, again, listen to Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You take his point? Birds are flying by, and Jesus says, has it ever occurred to you that those birds don't have a job? And yet your heavenly Father who made them makes sure that they're fed, you certainly matter more to your heavenly Father than the flying birds. Don't worry about it. And this is the fully-orbed character of God, which you won't hear about consistently in American Bible teaching. Because everybody loves the God who is love, and He exists. That's what the Bible says about Him. God is love, but the God of justice? Eh, I get a little uncomfortable. Do you know why you get uncomfortable? Because Jesus wants you to be uncomfortable. He wants you to be uncomfortable for the same reason your oncologist may someday show you your results. Not because he wants to terrify you and ruin you, because he wants to save you. He wants to say there is a severe problem here. You are headed on your way to death, but we can do something about it. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. He has only months to live. He is on his way to stand between sinful people and the justice of God as God's perfect, final, total, personal solution to the anger of God rightfully poured out on sinful people. And you see a flash of that fatherly love by Jesus reminding them, listen, if God is not capable of forgetting a single bird on earth, if God knows you so well that he knows how much hair you have on your head, what a detail. Can anybody claim to know that? He loves you, and this is the third reason to fear him in the biblical sense. To revere Him, to be in awe of Him because He lovingly cares about every detail of our lives. So much so, so good and close and personal is His love that Jesus calls us friends. And God, this God who gives life and takes it, the God who rules heaven and welcomes people into it and retains the authority to cast sinful people into hell, that same God calls you His beloved daughter, His beloved son. He deserves your awe. When we sing a song like, Great is the Lord, He deserves every syllable of that. We didn't do Him justice. We never will. That's why worship will go on forever. This is why God deserves to be lovingly revered, trusted, and obeyed. And if you want to get very, very practical about that, whenever God tells you to do something simple and mundane like this, pray, and you don't, I don't, what you show is that you don't really have much reverence for Him. Does that make sense? 
Because if you revered him in the way he deserves, you would say, of course I'll pray. I'm delighted to pray. You welcome me not as a king, but as my own father. I'll be delighted to talk to you. I can't wait to talk to you again. When God says serve, give, read, love, forgive, if you have enough reverence for him, you'll do that gladly as hard as it may be. When you lose fear or reverence for him, that's when it becomes a struggle. Every time I have disobeyed God, and there have been many times, some of them have occurred this week, it has been because I was in greater fear of myself, my plans, or what others would think or do than I was in reverence of my Heavenly Father, who is this great. So what do we do with a God like this? That's the rest of the passage. How do we respond to a God like this. Well, Proverbs 29 verse 25 says this. Read it with me. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's why Jesus said, fear God, not people. Don't be afraid of the torturer. Don't be afraid of the murderer. Only fear God because the fear of man lays a snare. Anytime you think that someone else's opinion or instructions are of greater value to you than the Lord's, that will be a trap to you, a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, whatever he's saying, is going to be safe. How do we respond to a God like that? Let's keep reading. How should we respond to this awe-inspiring God? Verse 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, that's Jesus using a messianic title in the book of Daniel 700 years earlier. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. That's quite a statement. You claim me, I'll claim you. You claim me on earth in face of persecution, in face of struggle, in face of limited budgets, in in the face of difficult children and relatives and challenging jobs that chip away at your faith and make work an everyday battle because it's hard to be a Christian where you work. Jesus says, you acknowledge me there, you acknowledge me in life, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. In other words, someday the risen Christ will say, she is with me. Wow, what a moment. She owned me in life, I own her now at judgment. Looking forward to it? You should. I should, if I'm thinking right. But here's the crossroads. Look at the very next verse. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Whoa. Now, this can't mean a one-time fearful denial. It can't mean a stumble or a struggle because Peter will soon deny his Lord. Remember? But he came back. They're at a crossroads. As the very next verse is going to show you, the people in the crowd are reaching the point, because of the pressure of the Pharisees, they're reaching the point of making a final determination of what they think about Jesus. Because Jesus now is clearly speaking of who he is. He is saying, I know the God who kills and throws people into hell. Someday I will claim to know you if you claim to know me in life. If you really throw your lot in with me, I'll stand for you in judgment. 
This is no mere religious teacher. This is not just another rabbi. This is the Son of God speaking the Word of God in the loudest, most loving, and at the same time clear and frightening language that has ever been spoken in any human language. And people are making up their minds because the next verse says, verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What do we do with this so far? Jesus is telling you how to respond to Him. Here's the first part. Number one, you keep standing for Jesus no matter what it costs you. If they make it uncomfortable, you stand. Because whoever threatens you in this world will soon be gone and answer to your heavenly Father. You fear people more than you fear God, you'll lose every time. The fear of man lays a snare. Whoever trusts the Lord shall be safe. And now Jesus says, if you speak against me, you'll be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. What does that mean? Number two, you need to keep your heart tender to the Holy Spirit. This is a hard passage and many, and something that has concerned many sincere Christians. When I was about 13 years old, I had an intrusive evil thought regarding the Holy Spirit enter my mind at a youth camp while someone was speaking of the Spirit. And I thought, that's it. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm dead. What does Jesus mean? In context, I think this is what he's telling us. At, Luke's ba at his baptism, the Father affirmed Jesus and said, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with Him. Listen to Him. Now Jesus has been opening the Scriptures and working the miracles of God everywhere He goes. So the Father has spoken, and now the Son is speaking. And in one terrible occasion, the Gospels say that men came down from Jerusalem, the religious authorities came down, examined Jesus, and made a terrible verdict. Some of you know it. They said, His miracles are satanic. And Jesus said there in more detail than He did here, if you, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that will never be forgiven. Why? Because every witness that, has been, that could be given already has been. The Father has spoken, the Son has spoken, and the Holy Spirit has empowered and moved in Jesus' life as no one ever has experienced in life to do the very works of God. And if you reject His witness, there's no one left to point you to the love of God. You can't be forgiven because you've made a final hard-hearted verdict in spite of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit speaking to you that it's all useless, that it's all wrong, that it's all evil. So the Holy Spirit is the final witness to Jesus. If He's blasphemed, there is no hope left. So what should you do? You should keep your heart tender. As you walk along with Jesus, you should cultivate the fear of God, the reverence of God that says, and I had a good morning with the Lord. I don't always. I'm frail and up and down and easily distracted, selfish at the core. But I had a good morning with the Lord, and what that looked like was I woke up 
realized I was alive, realized I felt good, realized I was coming to church to worship the Lord, and I thanked Him. I said, Father, you've again extended to me another day of life. I am going together with your people. I have the unique privilege this Sunday of being the one who opens up the Bible with them. And I'm going to talk to them, Jesus, about some of the hardest things you ever said. And you said them because you're good and because you love us and because you didn't want us to take the wrong road and be lost forever. So what do you do with a God like this? You stand with Him and you keep your, your heart and your mind tender toward the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then He says in the last two verses, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So you trust, number three, you trust the Spirit to teach you how to respond when you're persecuted for Christ. Why? Because all of God loves you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He loves you. And when you're dragged before councils, Jesus says, don't worry. You don't have to game plan your defense. God Himself and the person of the Holy Spirit will come beside you and minister from within you, and He will teach you what to say. We are amazingly blessed in America. These concepts of persecution and standing fast and answering to authorities who are hostile seem very foreign to us. We have exceedingly precious and wonderful constitutional freedoms guaranteed to us and freedom of expression and freedom of worship. And I have no idea. Anyone who's making political predictions in America can't be sure about anything. But I can assure you of this. If it gets harder for you to follow Jesus, the Spirit will be with you. The Father who loves you, who knows the numbers of hairs on your head, who loves you so carefully that He loves you much more than every bird that He carefully feeds all over the world, He will continue loving you. If they do the worst to you that anyone could, and they ostracize you and push you out and ruin your life or even end it because of your faith and stand with Christ, then someday when that's over and you meet Jesus, He'll claim you, and He'll acknowledge you in the presence of angels. So what does Crosspoint need to do in 2018 to sustain us for life and make us the kinds of Christians that heard Jesus hear these words? We need to remember to cultivate the fear of the Lord because a person who has a right fear of God, reveres God, will have no room left to fear people. And what God is looking for is not careless, thoughtless, reckless people. He is looking for people who love and trust Him so much, who hold Him in so much awe that they don't care what anyone else says against Him. They will love and obey and trust Him anyway. And the spirit of our age is to put the finger in the wind and see which way it's blowing and try to go with the flow. We can't. We've never been able to. We're beloved sons and daughters of the great King. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The Holy Spirit came in and gave new life. If you know Jesus as Savior, you have experienced and are enjoying, in some measure at least, the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gave you new life. 
You speak to him in prayer. You hear from him in his word. In hard times, you have discovered that he sustains you and comforts you and gives you peace. Jesus is saying, have so much awe and love for that God that you have no room left to fear anyone else who would threaten you. That's why we celebrate communion today. In reverence. In gratitude. In obedience. If you don't know this Savior... It's a very full room this morning. If you don't know this Savior, you are standing at that crossroads. If you've heard this gospel many times before and it's gotten pat, it's gotten old, it's gotten so familiar that you no longer feel like you have to make a move after God, you yourself are in danger. Please be saved today. Not by joining this church, by claiming Jesus. By saying to Him, I've sinned, I'm far from you. I am exposed to your justice. Give me mercy instead through Jesus. And he will. If only you'll humble yourself and claim him as Savior. How do you do that? You reach out to him in humble prayer and confess yourself a sinner and ask Jesus to be your Savior. All I would ask, humanly speaking here, horizontally speaking, once you deal vertically with God, is that you would take the card in your bulletin and let us know that you've done that because we want to walk the road of discipleship with you. We want to encourage you and teach you what the Lord has taught us as people who are also following Him. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn now to make decisions with the word that you spoke in Luke's gospel, I pray that every heart would be tender, that everyone would be tenderhearted to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that whoever is here who needs to be saved by trusting you would be right now. This is very rare, but I just, if you'll keep a reverent, prayerful attitude, could I just ask, is there anyone here who needs to claim Jesus as Savior this morning? If there is, could I ask you to raise your hand? Yes, thank you, sir. God bless you. Anyone else? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call anybody out. I just feel led of God to be very clear and very specific that I'm asking you to trust Christ as Savior. Anyone else? Just raise your hand. Whether you did or not, could I just invite you to call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm here. I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I've done what's wrong. I deserve justice. Give me mercy instead. I'm trusting your death in my place to give me life. Those aren't magic words. Repeating anybody else's words alone won't save you, but turning in repentance to God and saying, I need you to save me, that will, that will save you. Jesus will save you. Confessing honestly that need will save you. So, sir, God bless you. I'd love for you to let us know who you are on that card. That's all I would ask. You won't be embarrassed in any way publicly but we'd like to rock, walk the road with you, whether you raised your hand or not. If you need Christ, come to Him. Be tenderhearted to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that may be tugging at you right now and turn to Him for salvation. What we're going to do next is something that Jesus commanded. Here's the order. Christians trusted Christ as Savior and became Christians. In the New Testament, at least, they were immediately baptized, and then they gathered in their local church family and in obedience to him, they celebrated communion. They took the Lord's Supper. They took unleavened bread to remember 
have a pure, blameless life of Christ that had no corrupting influence of hypocrisy in it. And they took wine to remember his blood. In our case, we take a little piece of unleavened bread, and it's just grape juice. For those of you who are sober, don't want to go back to alcohol, you can participate without any concern whatsoever. But we do this not to save ourselves, but to remember, to thank Him in remembrance of Him, as He said. We do this in gratitude for His death on our behalf to save us. Lord, as we sing and we serve the elements that remind us of Your sacrifice, hear our worship, receive our thanks in Jesus' name.